Today's show is proudly sponsored by Minding the Gap. You guys all know that mental health for dancers matters. You're on board. You want to see the culture in your studio change, but where do you start? Enter Minding the Gap. Minding the Gap is dedicated to seeing mental health regarded with the same seriousness as physical health in dance culture, and they come armed with solutions. Whether it's helping you craft policies and procedures that protect the mental wellness of dancers and staff, consulting to build a robust mental health program in your school or company, or providing mental health skills workshops for your students and teachers, Minding the Gap has you covered. They bring the expertise of the best dance mental health experts in the world to you. For more information, visit www.wearemindingthegap.org or click the link in the show notes. Hello, dancers. I'm so excited to be here today. I had the privilege of speaking with Erin Sanchez. She's an advocate, educator, and developing applied researcher. She collaborates to improve dancers' health, well-being, and performance through healthy working and training conditions and positive strengths-led psychological services and education. In 2021, she released her first book, which I have and I love, Psychology Skills for Dancers, with Professor Dave Collins and Dr. Anya McNamara. We speak about the reasons why challenge and adversity can be a good thing, what the research is showing us, and how you can navigate your own challenges and personally define your success. This episode is going to be especially powerful for those dancers in the thick of injury or any kind of adversity, really, and I cannot wait to hear what you guys think about it. Please remember that I'm not a mental health professional, so anything you hear me say on the show is based on my personal experience and perspectives and should not be considered medical advice. By listening to this podcast, you agreed not to use any of the content to diagnose you or anyone else of any mental or health condition. If any of the things shared on the show resonate with you, I encourage you to talk to your doctor or click the link in the show notes to find the best healthcare professional for you. And before I get started, I also want to mention that anything said on the podcast reflects my dance experience as a whole and not any one teacher, studio, or company. The opinions shared by my guests in this episode are their own and come from their individual viewpoint. Like I said earlier, you guys, this, in, this episode is going to be so, so, so powerful for all of you, uh, no matter where you're at in your career or any challenges you might be um, facing. And uh, let's just get into it. Here you go. Hello, dancers. Welcome back. I'm really excited today to bring on my guest, Erin Sanchez. Welcome, Erin. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yes, thank you for coming. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I know you are a uh, friend of uh, Kathleen Gaines and Minding the Gap, our sponsor, and I know you've got some really exciting information to bring to all of my listeners today, so I'm really, really excited to talk to you. So yeah, let's jump in. Um, so first of all, um, I always like to hear from my guests an overview with uh, of your relationship with ballet um, over time, and if it's relevant um, to our conversation and you feel comfortable, uh, if you want to include any details about what role your mental health has played throughout that that time, and also how you became an applied researcher in the field of dance. Sure. 
So to start off with my relationship with ballet, um, I started ballet at five um, and I stopped uh, pretty shortly after that to study the harp and then the flute and then theater. Um, and then I started back up again from the age of about 11 or 12 and danced through my mid twenties. Um, I started out um, at that 11 or 12 period at a studio that was local to where I lived. And then I went to a uh, university and studied dance and sociology. And then I went on to study in a vocational training um, school called the Ailey School in New York. Um, I'd sort of characterize that experience um, with dance and sort of my relationship with ballet specifically as firstly being an activity. Um, I think lots of young people participate in dance as an activity, and I certainly did. I remember very clearly the polyester leotard <laughs> that was powder blue that had my name like embroidered on the side of it. Um, I totally remember that. And so that was kind of like the activity period in my ballet career. Uh -huh. um, and then secondly, I think it was about maybe um, a passion or a fairy tale, maybe a little bit of an obsession. Um, <laughs> that period when you get your first tutu and where you're getting your point shoes, when it's just all really beautiful and mm. princessy. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of maybe the next phase. My, my next phase after that, I think, was probably that ballet was a sense of identity and a source of self-knowledge. Mm. So I felt like when I was in a ballet class, when I was in a ballet environment, I was with my tribe. Um, I learned a lot about my body through somatic practices that I studied through ballet. Um, I also learned a lot about anatomy through ballet, so I learned a lot about myself. Um, the next phase, I'd say, as I kind of got into my late teens and 20s, was that ballet was an expressive outlet and a place to let go of, of sort of everything that was going on and to just be myself. Um, and now I'd say that ballet is a place of maybe purpose and doing something that's bigger than myself. So I get to work with people who make art, which I think is a quite transcendental, spiritual, societally important activity. Um, and that means that I get to do something which I think is really meaningful and purposeful. So I'd say that's my connection with ballet. Oh, that's beautiful. I love the, the different phases that you took us through. That was quite a journey. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. And then I think you were also maybe asking about some of the, maybe the mental health aspects mm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think probably the mental health role in my dancing career was that I was, um, I don't know, I felt like dance was a place, like I said, to kind of become myself and get to know myself. I had maybe a difficult adolescence. I was... Um, an early mature. I was large and tall for my age. Um, and I think dance helped me to kind of feel safe and at home in my body, like I said. Um, and it was also a place that kind of made me, allowed me to learn to create beauty. Um, and also perhaps complicated and made my adolescence a little bit harder. So <laughs> I think from a mental health perspective, it was a mixed bag in that mm. I had that sort of positive experience with kind of feeling that sense of creating beauty with this body that I wasn't quite sure about. But I also, um, I don't know, I heard some difficult things from teachers about my body mm -hmm. and that definitely affected my mental health when I was younger. But 
I also had some incredibly supportive parents. My father is a clinical psychologist and my mother is just mm. the most supportive dance mom you'll ever meet. She's She loves everything that I do and she doesn't worry too much about what I do or how successful I am. She's just glad that I love dancing. Mm, and that's nice. <laughs> that kind of as a, as a ballast to everything that I was experiencing in dance was really important. And kind of in my more current times, I think that mental health has become a part of that passion and purpose that I see in dance. So I studied for an MSc in um, dance science, and I got to learn from people like Eleanor Quested, Joan Duda, um, Sana Norden Bates, who I know has been on. on yeah, the she's a friend before. of the show she's too. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I love her. Um, and they just made me fall in love with dance psychology. And I think that that was something that really kind of reignited my understanding of how dance and mental health were linked up for me. Mm -hmm. Wow. What a, what a life. This is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, you definitely um, have surrounded yourself with the best of the best and um, yeah, count and also count yourself one of them also, <laughs> I have to add. So yeah, that's really, really cool. Um, so how did you get into this research, applied research field? Like, what did that look like trajectory-wise for you? Yeah, so I was um, in vocational training, and I ended up taking a little bit of a detour because I had a bereavement in my life that kind of mm. made, well, changed my relationship with performing. Mm -hmm. And I had always kind of thought that, oh, if I wasn't a dancer, maybe I'd be a doctor. So I considered the possibility of going back and retraining in medicine, but I decided to kind of dip my toe in the water by doing a master's degree first. Okay. And I was lucky enough in my university education to be um, tutored by somebody who had already known about dance science and was one of the pioneers of dance science. Her name is Virginia Wilmerding. And she suggested that I try this program in dance science, which allowed me to kind of, like I say, meet lots of incredible dance psychologists. And that, my first project in that master's program or my dissertation project um, was looking at how talent development was impacted by cultural background variables. So things like your family's uh, economic status or their beliefs about dance or their values. And so I think that I got the bug for researching as a part of that <laughs> process. Yeah. Um, I think everybody has questions, but not everybody has incredible, like knowledgeable people who can teach you how to answer those questions robustly. And I was just surrounded by those people during my master's program. And it just lit me up and made me so passionate and interested in learning how to answer questions. And indeed, actually, maybe a little step back from that, asking good questions. Because I think researchers often are good at identifying questions, but research in dance really, I think quality research in dance is founded on being able to ask relevant questions mm. to the people that you're working with in dance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Very cool. So I'd love to hear about your the research that you are involved with itself. Uh, so one of the topics I know that you're working on is how dancers define success, experience challenges, and how they navigate those challenges. And I think 
how dancers define success. I think that that in and of itself is a really fascinating topic to just dissect and and to explore. So yeah, I'd love to hear all about that. <laughs> oh man, I could talk for days about right? this. I'll try to be sort of succinct. So yeah, like you said, the 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 research that I'm working on right now is a part of my PhD. Um, I'm supervised by Professor Dave Collins and Dr. Christine Nash. Um, and the, the sort of third study in my PhD is about psychological skills and talent development. And I didn't kind of go into it thinking that I wanted to ask dancers about how they define success or what they experienced in terms of challenges during their talent development process uh, or how they manage those challenges. I think that stuff ended up coming out of of the research in an unexpected way mm. and looking at it retrospectively now I kind of go oh well obviously those were things that were going to come out of those kinds of questions but it really surprised me how salient those issues were so to kind of give you a little bit of a background maybe about yeah. these questions so um there's a study by Collins McNamara and McCarthy from 2016 and it's called Super Champs, Champs, and Almosts. And essentially what it's looking at is 54 athletes coming from team sport, individual sport, combat sport, and sports that are called centimeter, gram, and second sports, which are basically sports where measurements are involved in winning and losing. Mm -hmm. And essentially this research intended to understand the differences and commonalities between people who were expert elite performers and those who were maybe just a little bit less good in terms of their capabilities or their their ending career uh, trajectories and those who almost made it to that elite level but didn't quite mm -hmm. and it's a fascinating study and it kind of centers around two key components the first of them is about what Collins, McNamara, and McCarthy call the rocky road. So you can kind of imagine that talent and talent development is a road. You start off at your existing skills or your natural abilities, and you end up at a place where you have talent and skill. So for a young dancer, this might be, you know, your very first dance class, all the way through to a professional career and lots and lots of praise and recognition, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that sports researchers know, or a lot of research has seemed to indicate, is that actually that pathway to success is a bit rocky, a bit challenging, and it's often nonlinear. So it's mm -hmm. not as though you kind of make one step and the next step and the next step. It's a very dynamic experience. And it's also maybe something that we're becoming more aware of that a degree of challenge is actually desirable, mm -hmm. that we need to have these challenges in order to develop our skills, in order to develop our talent, and then eventually become successful. So this study just made me ask so many questions because it's about athletes and because it's talking about these challenges that athletes experience and the fact that actually challenges are supportive and important for you. And I just wanted to know, well, how does that compare to dancers' experiences? And what is talent development like for dancers? Um, what are the underlying beliefs that dancers have about 
being successful because ultimately when you look at an elite sports person, you can see how many games they've won or lost. You can see whether or not they've played at a national or an international level. For a dancer, that eliteness kind of definition is a lot less clear. So we kind of had to figure out, okay, well, how are dancers defining what success is and how can we say whether they're super champions or almost? It's very subjective. It is, especially when you consider um, you know, in classical ballet, generally speaking, you've got hierarchical levels uh, within in you know the large dance companies, but then you also have freelance dancers, you know, and that's a whole other thing. And um, yeah, yeah, so that must be really difficult to to delineate. Yeah, and definitions were really important. So when we were talking about what a dancer is, I mean, depending on who you ask, dancers could be lots of different things, right? So you just gave the example of classical ballet and a freelance career. You can be a freelance classical ballet dancer, yeah? Sure. Mm -hmm. But what about hip-hop? How do you define eliteness in hip-hop? Or in ballroom? Or in jazz dance? Mm -hmm. There's so many different possibilities for what a dancer could be. So I think that was another kind of piece of the puzzle there. Another question that I had was about challenge, because if we think that the talent development process is supposed to be a rocky road, well, then what do those challenges look like for dancers? I mean, if you've ever read any, well, I mean, if you've read Dance Magazine in the last three years, <laughs> yeah, or if you've ever read any literature in dance psychology, you know that there are some significant challenges that are pretty obvious that most dancers go through, things like injuries or difficult transitions or things like maybe... Um, uh, setbacks in terms of their feeling like they're progressing. Mm -hmm. Those are all really normal, normal challenges, but I was curious about how dancers themselves define those challenges and what that meant. Um, and then finally, I was really curious to hear what people recalled retrospectively about their talent development experience. So retrospective research is basically asking somebody to try and remember something. Mm -hmm. So when you ask a dancer, what do you remember about your experiences in training? I was really curious to hear what they'd say. And I had a, a feeling that depending on whether or not they felt like they had been successful in their professional careers, that they might remember those training experiences differently. Uh-huh. So that was kind of the, the groundwork for all the questions that I had. And I think lots of the questions are maybe quite common. I mean, I think if you've ever gone through a talent development experience, you've probably asked yourself some of those questions before. What is success for me? How do I manage challenges? You know, what, you know, what does being successful look like? Mm -hmm. But I think maybe one of the other things that um, is really obvious to me about this research is that when you think about talent development processes in dance, they're not academically informed. So there's nobody sitting in your local ballet school or your average <laughs> vocational training environment who's sitting back academically and going, well, how well are we doing what we're doing? And mm. what are we using to inform our practices? Are we looking at literature? Are we asking experts to inform us about how we improve our talent development process? It's a little bit more artistic. It's a little bit more um, dynamic, I guess. So people are maybe reaching out to the industry to say, okay, well, are graduates, you know, employable? 
or maybe they're looking at the number of people who graduate and immediately go on to professional contracts. Mm -hmm. But to be fair, that's not a super robust way to analyze whether or not you're being successful in creating um, professional dancers. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot to this. Um, so what I did is I, just to kind of give you a, an understanding of the design of the research, mm-hmm. I interviewed 73 dancers, um, and I included in that an equal number of ballet dancers, contemporary dancers, hip hop dancers, commercial dancers, musical theater dancers, and dancers who were either in ballroom or Latin forms. Cool. So I really wanted to get a broad spectrum of theater dance forms. So mm-hmm. I didn't look a lot at social dance forms, but more at competitive or performative art form dances mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i spoke both to pre-professional dancers who were intending to go into the profession so people who were in vocational training who were intending to be professionals um, and i also spoke to professional dancers um, they ranged in age between 18 and 35 Um, And I used um, a very similar design to the structure that Collins, McNamara, and uh, McCarthy used in 2016. So I asked them to draw a picture of their talent development experience. So you can imagine a graph. And (laughs) along the sort of vertical axis, you have Uh your abilities as a dancer. Along the horizontal axis, you can imagine a timeline. So the bottom left-hand corner of the graph is the very first time you danced. The top uh, right-hand corner of the graph is where you are now in terms of your ability. So you can kind of imagine that you would see this trajectory going across the page. And what I asked people to do was to kind of talk me through the trajectory of their talent development. So I had my first dance class here. This is when I had my first, you know, uh, experience doing an audition for a ballet school. Mm -hmm. This is where I had my first injury and it was really, really hard. This is where I got, you know, the lead role in the the Christmas show, (laughs) whatever. Yeah. So all the dips and valleys. Exactly, exactly. Yes, and squig- like squiggly lines and loop-de-loops and backwards and forwards. and <laughs> <laughs> Exactly that, exactly yeah. that. Yeah. So we did that. And then I asked them some questions about, specifically about what they experienced as being challenging, what they experienced as feeling successful, and also their motivation. So why were they dancing? What was important to them about dancing? So that's the kind of the design. Now mm-hmm. I can tell you maybe a little bit about the results. Yes, I'm excited. All right. <laughs> all right. I'm too. really excited. <laughs> so broadly speaking and really interestingly, dancers talked about the fact that their training and their careers almost exclusively, I didn't speak to anyone who didn't identify any challenges in their in their trajectory. Sure. So they were universally challenging. And people talked about things like injury. They also talked about rejection and the challenge of maybe not making that audition or not getting that first job or whatever. They talked about training plateaus. So Mm. periods in their training when they were working really hard, but they just felt like they weren't getting anywhere. They felt Mm -hmm. like they were spinning their wheels. And people also talked about loss of motivation and kind of Mm. feeling a bit stuck or lost or unsure. Um, People talked about personal traumas and sort of setbacks in their lives outside of dance, which affected Mm -hmm. their 
um, either their training or their ability to perform. Um, and people also talked about things like fear of failure. So all of those challenges for me listening to it, having had an experience of training myself, they all seemed pretty obvious and pretty like, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard about that mm -hmm. one before, you know? <laughs> but one of the things that really kind of hit me when I was analyzing the data was that in addition to them being deeply challenging these trajectories, they were also incredibly meaningful and important. Mm. That these challenges that people were describing as they were going through them with me, they were having this experience of going, oh, you know, I never realized how important that experience was. And it was this really kind of enlightening experience to reflect and well, I guess to, to be witnessing someone reflecting on that really key development in their lives, because most yeah. of these people were, you know, completely engrossed in a career or a training in dance. And so for them to reflect on this really important time, mm -hmm. to hear them to kind of say, oh my gosh, that was so important. And I never really realized how important that was. Um, so that was kind of the main, one of the main findings was that dance training and careers are both incredibly challenging, but also deeply meaningful and important. Yeah. I think that's really, I mean, it must've been to some degree therapeutic for some of these people too, because a lot of times I think, you know, reflecting back on my own dance career and, and those dips and valleys that sometimes I would say probably most of the time, it's nearly impossible to appreciate the challenges when you're going through them. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you do come out the other side, whether that's through retirement or you've moved on into leadership or not, not anything dance related at all, when you do sit down to reflect on all of the challenges and, and how they affected you, I mean, there is some gratitude there. I mean, at least for me. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the other things that, uh, that came out of the, the research was that success is defined holistically. So I expected dancers to tell me, you know, that success was about objective markers. So getting that job in that really good company or mm -hmm. winning that competition or getting all of the awards and the praise and being recognized in the press. And that was in there, you know, those objective markers of success and professionalism indeed were all in there. You know, the the certain job on your CV, getting that specific role or that audition or that whatever. But there was also a huge element of meeting personally defined goals. So mm -hmm. it wasn't so much about what other people thought would be important for success. It was that they had decided that they were going to go to that company and they were going to do that work uh -huh. and they did that. And so they could kind of tick that off their list. The other thing that was kind of coming out of it as well was that success wasn't just those objective or personally defined goals. It was also well-being, satisfaction and personal fulfillment as well. Mm. So somebody said to me, you know, I want to earn money doing something that I enjoy and I want that thing to be challenging for me. Yeah. And it was like, oh, well, that's okay. not just having a good job. That's not just working hard. That is wanting to enjoy that process as well. Mm -hmm. There was another one who said, there's no point in achieving these things if it doesn't make you happy. Mm. I want to be doing exactly what I love doing. And it was... <laughs> 
it was really interesting to hear people talk about that balance between being satisfied, being feeling like what they were doing was good for them and yes. enjoyable and positive, but also reaching that kind of goal for themselves. Yeah, you know, that's oof, that's really hitting me pretty hard because I know that my transition from professionally dancing and I and I continued on with a teaching career alongside, you know, other careers that were completely unrelated to dance. I think I mean, I spent five years in college changing my major four times as an undergrad because I was looking for that because I had something that, you know, dance had always given me that true fulfillment and I was not willing to accept a life where I was just punching my card and collecting a paycheck. I was completely unwilling to accept that and I still am. Um, but I think that's, I mean, it can be both a blessing and a curse, right? Because when you do make that transition, it's like, okay, I need something else that's going to now fill this, this void, you know, in my career. Um, but also I think it's really powerful because then dancers potentially could have a more fulfilling adulthood and, and career in that, you know, they're not willing to accept less than that. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. But I think it I think what you've sort of shared there in that story is how that can that can be a challenge in and of itself as well. Mm -hmm. That that can kind of lead to a, a hunger for something yeah. more. Yes. And that's that's an interesting thing to have to grapple with, right? Because if you reach <laughs> that and you go, I found this thing and it feeds me and it's truly meaningful to me, gosh, what a sweet reward for all that hard work. Mm -hmm. of looking for it but if you haven't found it yet it can feel really hard it can <laughs> yes. feel like a really hard slog to go I'm not satisfied I'm yes. not satisfied here yeah 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 so yeah like I said blessing and a curse but I think also um something that I had to learn is that I have to find fulfillment in many different things not in just one thing and for so long ballet was such a part of my identity and was the only thing I was pulling that fulfillment from. So then when it was gone, it was like, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, so now I'm learning, you know, I'm learning to play the banjo right now. And yeah, it's always been my dream to play in a bluegrass band. Like, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but at least I, ha I have a banjo. <laughs> I have it in my possession. So, you know, just like weird little things, you know, that all add up to that fulfillment is really important to kind of diversify and spread things out a little. It takes yeah. the pressure off. Yeah, absolutely. And I really yeah. look forward to when Dance Better is actually Play the Banjo Better um, <laughs> podcast. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, I'll meet Steve Martin one day and we'll we'll have a, a jam session, right? Oh my God. I know. Please, can you invite me to watch that? That would be so amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think one of the other things that maybe uh, came out of this idea about success and asking dancers about success was that there were, I asked them specifically whether they thought that they were, there were characteristics that they had as people, which allowed them to be successful. And it was really interesting when you're asking a dancer, okay, well, why were you successful? The first thing they say will be, well, I don't think I was successful. Uh-huh. That's not, not surprising to me at all. 
But when you kind of then kind of probe that and go further and say, okay, well, Uh this, this period in your life when you were kind of high on your trajectory, mm-hmm. what, what do you think got you there? And interestingly, no one said that they had great feet or perfect mm-hmm. turnout or mm-hmm. high extensions. You know, people did say that they had artistic qualities and some natural abilities, mm-hmm. but no one said that their success was down to one of those things that I think we all think is going to make us successful when we're younger. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, she has better feet than me, so she's going to get into that company right. and she's going to be successful and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's not the case. Not so much. Yeah. <laughs> and interesting to hear that almost all of these people were talking about, you know, these characteristics that allowed them to be successful were psychological. So one person said to me, when I got knocked back, I had to be able to determine why I was knocked back and Mm. to improve. Another person said, I expect a lot of myself, but I'm aware that I don't want to put too much pressure on myself. Um, Another person said, I learned to set limits, to draw a line and to make sure I didn't sacrifice past that line. Mm. So when you listen to that, what you're hearing is people's ability to psychologically understand what's being asked of them and to be able to know how to essentially rise to those occasions. And I think overcoming challenges was a key feature. And (laughs) Collins McNamara and and McCarthy talk about a fanatical reaction to challenge. (laughs) And a lot of the people that I spoke to said that they were either incredibly determined or yeah. really, really committed or never gave up. It's that Michael and Jordan mentality. Like if you tell totally. him, if you t- did you watch that documentary? Oh, it's so good. But someone, you know, anytime anyone told him it wasn't possible or you can't do that. I mean, it was like fire was lit. <laughs> completely, completely. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's such a lovely idea that, we are we're almost kind of unable to let something trot us down. We can't say no to that that desire and we're not going to let someone close the door on us. But I think one of the things that that really is is fascinating about what I've just sort of shared in terms of some of the quotes was that people knew that there was a limit. People knew that there was an edge to what they were doing. And I think that's quite, quite important as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oof. Wow. That's really, really like some of it's very surprising, you know, because gosh, I mean, if I had had better feet or if I, you know, like you were just saying, like if I X, Y, Z, A, B, C, especially when you're sitting in an audition, you know, or you're a a core member and you're trying to climb that ladder um, yeah, that's that's really, really fascinating that um, those dancers were finding their their psychological skills to be better markers of success. That's really cool. So yeah, I'd lo- yeah so I'd love to hear about so on the other side of the research, um, do we have any conclusions about how dancers can apply these findings to help them in both in and outside the studio? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of the things that I am really passionate about is that research is fascinating and you can tell that I could talk about research all day. Yes, me um, too. <laughs> and I'm not even in academia. I just love it. 
<laughs> yeah, but opportunities to think about how you actually apply that are vital. And I think that's the point of doing research. So what I would suggest are the things to take away from this kind of research is firstly to normalize challenge. Every single one of the people that I spoke to had lots of challenges that they experienced during their time. And that didn't mean that they were failures. It also didn't mean that they were being traumatized. Mm. So recognize the difference between challenge and failure in that mm -hmm. challenge is normal. It's individualized. It's structured. It's developmentally achievable. You want challenge. But what you don't want is this, this notion of failing. If you experience a challenge and you're not able to overcome it, it's not that you have failed. It's that you haven't overcome it yet. Mm. And I think that's the difference for me between challenge and failure is willingness to continue to work on it and try it again and try something different, try something new. Um, I think the other thing about challenge as being a normal thing is that if challenge is normal and expected and actually a good thing, you know, challenge is the thing that allowed these people to be able to be successful, well, then we should prepare for challenge. There's this really amazing concept called proactive coping. And I don't know if you're familiar with the term coping, but no. coping is often something that we do um, or we think we should do after something's happened. So, mm -hmm. oh, how did you cope with being sick? Or, oh, how did you deal with that injury? Yeah. But actually coping is something we should be doing in advance. So uh -huh. if I know that I've got an audition coming up in the next six months, I can think, okay, what is that audition going to challenge me to do? Is it going to challenge me to be consistent in my turns? Is it going to challenge me to rise to that artistic style that I haven't done before? And how can I prepare myself to show my best in the face of those challenges? And that might be, okay, I need to put in some more time really working on the technique of my spotting practice. I really need to work on that, that musicality that's so kind of, I don't know, specific to that style or that company. And when you've done that, no matter how that audition turns out, you've still learned those things. Yeah. And you're not a failure, no matter how that audition turns out. Yeah, because you come so, out the other side with these extra skills or this you know, it heightened skill. Exactly. Yeah, that's cool. So challenge is normal and it should be something that we are kind of accepting and preparing for. I think we also need to define what success looks like and we need to feel it and recognize it. So success for every single person that I spoke to was different. They all talked about different definitions of success. And I think it's really vitally important that no matter where you are in your training or your professional career, you need to know what success is for you. So maybe that's, you know, the, the next show, maybe that's your next training opportunity. Maybe that's mastering a particular skill, whatever it is, know what it is. And I would encourage people to write it down, reflect on it, really make it explicit and then also, when you've achieved it, recognize that and celebrate that. Because I think we're so bad at just kind of, we're climbing away up this mountain towards that goal that we see off there in the distance. Yes. We never look back down the mountain at how far we've climbed. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to do that more often. I think that helps for a variety of different reasons. But 
being able to recognize success, knowing what it is, recognizing it when it happens, really, really important. Yeah. And I think I've heard so many times that, um, that the process should be more valuable than the achievement because you spend how many hours in the studio, how many hours in, you know, how many tendus do you do over a lifetime? How many plies do you do over a lifetime? Like you're spending so much time in, in this phase and without this phase, you wouldn't like the, the achievements wouldn't happen. So if you're able to reflect back and celebrate that process more, I would assume that you will look forward to the next process rather than focusing only on the end result. Yeah, and I think it's a complex thing. I think process mm -hmm. orientation is uh, maybe not always going to result in positive affect or feeling better about the next step. Mm -hmm. But I think awareness in and of itself of what's working and what's not. Okay, I didn't like that process. I didn't enjoy that. Mm. Well, that awareness is going to help you to decide whether or not you want to do a process like that in the future. Yeah. You know, maybe, and this is something that I think we all really need to be aware of we are human beings as well as people who love dancing. <laughs> and it may be that the kind of dancing that you're doing right now or the kind of engagement with dance that you have right now isn't great and you don't like it. Mm -hmm. And that's totally okay. But being aware of that and going, okay, I'm aware that actually this isn't feeding me, serving me. I'm not enjoying this. What would allow me to enjoy this? What is the thing that's going to be going to be helpful to me. Yeah. I think being in that process oriented place is going to help you to see that. Yeah. I mean, it puts so much intention behind everything you're doing. I don't know, for me personally, I didn't have any of these resources, you know, 25, 30 years ago, um, unfortunately. But the way you're describing it, it's such an intentional process that I don't know, I feel like it takes a, a bit of fear out of the equation and a little bit of uncertainty out of the equation because no matter what happens, at least you have this intentional approach and you know that you're going to learn something. <laughs> Whether that's you, you improve a skill or you learn that, well, this didn't work and let's move on to the next thing or redesign it or, you know, you know redo it. Um, I think that's really, really fascinating. Yeah. And I think intentionality, you kind of, you hit the nail on the head there. I think I, like I said, I, I had the, the incredible opportunity to kind of learn from Eleanor Quested and Joan Duda, who are some of the, the leaders in the area of motivational climate in dance and achievement goal orientation in dance. And one of the things that they taught me so well was that intrinsic motivation is this gold dust mm. that if we're doing things because we care about them, because we love them, because we're, they're beneficial to ourselves in some way, we are going to be more likely to be psychologically well. We are also more likely to be able to feel like we're progressing. Mm. And that I think Everyone wants that. Everyone wants to feel good about themselves, wants to feel like they're progressing and developing. And if we're doing stuff because we love it, then we're much more likely to experience that. Mm -hmm. Oh, beautiful. I love it.
Wow. What an honor it must be to be involved in this research. Yeah. Yeah, that's must you must just like get up every morning and just be like lit up. <laughs> I yeah. would be. <laughs> I do. I care about it a lot. And yeah. I think it's um it's sometimes a challenging thing, but I really, really enjoy it. Like yeah. coming back to that idea that it's challenging yeah, exactly. and meaningful. <laughs> yes. That's really, really great. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I know it's going to really help a lot of a lot of dancers and and encourage them to dig further. Um, so I'd like to shift gears a little bit, and I'd love to hear you talk about the Healthier Dancer program through Dance One UK that you are involved with, uh, what they're doing actively to improve dancer mental health across all organizations. Sure. So this is my day job. Um, <laughs> I am lucky again, lucky enough to do this. Um, I work for an organization, which is a sector support organization. It's a little bit like Dance USA if you're familiar with uh, that in the United States, or if you're in Australia, Ausdance is another similar organization. There's an organization in Germany called uh, uh, TAMED. So these are organizations that basically exist to support people who are professionally employed in dance or those who are in training. So my organization is called One Dance UK. And I also work for an organization called the National Institute of Dance Medicine and Science. Um, between those two organizations, there's a wide breadth of things that we do. But broadly speaking, you can identify them into three strands, advocacy, research, and education. And within One Dance UK, there's something called the Healthier Dancer Program. And that was set up in 1986 with the idea that dancers needed support that was for them by them. And so this teeny tiny little organization, which was in fact set up around a dinner table, essentially, between two incredible people called Jane Attenborough and Bob Lockyer. Um, they just sort of sat around a dinner table and said, we really care about dancers and we want dancers to have a better gig, essentially, a better mm. opportunity to experience their careers and their training. So we started from that very humble beginning by kind of essentially hearing from dancers that injury was a big issue, that working conditions were a big issue. Um, and we, we sort of thought, okay, well, that's something that is important to investigate and to understand a little bit more about. So we did three research projects. The first one was in 1988, carried out by Ann Bowling. Second one was in 1996, carried out by Peter Brinson and Fiona Dick. And the third one was in 2005, carried out by Helen Laws. All of these research projects looked at the injury and health experiences of dancers in the UK. And what we found, broadly speaking, was that roughly 80% of dancers experienced an injury every year, and roughly 90% of dancers experienced a mental health concern every mm. year. Oof. So that's a really shocking statistic. And mm -hmm. I think, again, if you've ever had an experience in dance, particularly in professional environments and pre-professional environments, you know that in reality, those statistics are very prevalent and very yeah. real, you know? And so what we did in response to that research was that we started to do education work. So we started to do kind of work around um, developing knowledge around basic injury prevention. So warming up and cooling down, mm -hmm. physiotherapy support, healthy nutrition, making sure that people had access to psychological support. Those really foundational basic things were the 
the bare bones of an educational program. Um, and up to date now, we've done about 11,000 educational workshops in the UK. Wow. Um, so lots and lots of conversations about really important but fundamental information. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also worked a lot with um, trying to set up some industry standards. So across the world, in most dancing environments, there's no legislation to say that there is a certain professional way that things should have to be. So there's very uh, rarely in countries a law that says that dancers should have to, you know, warm up and cool down uh-huh. or that they should have access to injury care or that right. they should have, you know, mental health support. Um, there are often not those kinds of industry standards, working standards available. So we are helping to sort of start that process in the UK. Although we can't legislate it, we can sort of set out what best practice is. Mm-hmm. So we've worked with um, sort of representative bodies and dancers themselves to try and set up industry standards, which outline kind of what sorts of key information dance leaders should have about dancers' health, what kind of basic working conditions dancers should have. And it's constantly a fight because there aren't any laws that dictate this, Mm -hmm. but we do really passionately help people to advocate for themselves. And also we advocate to leaders and organizations and companies to try and maintain these standards. Um, so that is kind of broadly the, the work of, of this organization, this advocacy research and education kind of focused strand. But more recently in the last two years, since we've been all kind of locked <laughs> up in our homes, yeah. um, there's been a lot of development of the research side of things again. Um, but this research is maybe a little bit more focused on um, application. So we're right now looking at um, trying to provide what's called an employee assistance program, which would be sort of like um, maybe a health health insurance plan that organizations might offer for dancers. Mm-hmm. And what that would provide is counseling services, um, a trauma support line, um, uh, advice and support for people who are parents or carers, mm. often dancers who have children or start families, they they're struggling with challenges that are not discussed and not supported. So providing that support to dancers as well. Um, And also looking at safeguarding and abuse prevention. Um, I think that that's been something that has been on everyone's radar over the last couple of years, no matter Mm -hmm. what the source of abuse. um, We all want our environments to be safe, supportive, healthy for dancers. And so we need to understand how to create those kinds of environments without wrapping people in in bubble wrap yeah you know, we don't want to kind of take all of the <laughs> the boundary breaking beautiful elements of the artwork out mm-hmm. but we also want to make sure that people aren't being um harmed while they're yes. in training and professional environments so we're doing some investigation into safeguarding and kind of how we can ensure that dancers are in environments that are supporting them to do their best work Yeah. Wow. This is incredible work that you guys are doing. And I think too, that, um, you know, at the end of the day, like you said, you can only design best practices. Um, but also I feel like so many dancers, not only do they not have a voice or don't feel like they have a voice, but they also may not have the language to adequately transmit their needs to their leadership, you know? Um, so when you have work like this, that says, oh, yeah, okay, 
I have the right to have Marley in a sprung floor, <laughs> you know, like, and that would be like the most basic, you know, of the, the physical safety, but also I have the right to not be abused in the workplace, you know, um, to kind of boil it down. But I really feel like uh, this work is, is so powerful on so many different levels. And it's, it's really exciting to hear about it for sure. Yeah, wow. Okay, lastly, um, I, I think I emailed you last night. <laughs> I, as soon as I read about your book, that the new publication that's come out, Performance Psychology for Dancers, and you have two co-authors, I believe. Yep. Um, so you can talk a little bit about that. Um, but as soon as I, I saw it, I immediately went online and was like, okay, where can I get this? How soon can I get it? And unfortunately, it just came yesterday. So I've only read the introduction, but it is flipping through it, the chapters. Um, it's beautiful, first of all, the way it's laid out. Um, it's not a tome, so <laughs> it's not intimidating, you know? And the information within is evidence-based, so I know I, I, it's going to be a great read, but also not intimidating so that I know there's a whole chapter just for parents, for example. Um, I, I like, I'm just, I'm gonna have to have you back on probably to just break it down because I'm so <laughs> excited to read it. But yeah, please tell us about um, this publication, how it came about, um, and a little bit about it. Yeah, so I'll give you a really brief synopsis. So um, my PhD supervisor, Professor Dave Collins, and uh, Dr. Anya McNamara, who was also in that study that I've been referencing, um, mm -hmm. we decided to work on a book together. And by I say, by decided to work on a book together, I mean that Dave just wrote to both of us and said, <laughs> we're writing a book. <laughs> So um, I I definitely was terrified when I received that email and yeah. essentially was terrified throughout the entire process of doing the book. <laughs> but what, what has resulted from that terrifying email is a resource for dancers and also those that support them, and especially for the sort of talent development process. So for people who are kind of in that process of developing their talent. And I'm specifically and very pointedly not referring to them as young dancers uh -huh. because not everyone who's in a talent development process is young. Yeah, for sure. Um, the book is really very much focused on four key elements. So ideas, so the ideas about what talent development is and what success is, uh, tools for developing your talent. So psychological skills, psychomotor demands. So we often don't talk about the physical and motor demands of developing talent. And mm -hmm. there's some really good science out there that we're not talking about in dance. So there's a whole chapter about that. There's also a chapter in tools about talent identification and development processes in dance. Mm. So I would like for you to just think for a moment about how you would define talent in dance. What's a talented dancer? Give me some, you know, subjects or, or types. Let's see. Uh, someone who uh, has a good sense of musicality, I would say, like rhythm, musicality, has a, a good understanding of, of how that works and can interpret it. Um, someone who, oh gosh, this is a really hard question. Um, I don't want to give the wrong answer because my, my like 1990 bunhead brain wants to tell you great legs and feet, right? But 
as I know, as an adult now, with an education and a brain, um, that doesn't necessarily ring true. And also, what are Great Legs and Feet anyways? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say someone, really, for me, it boils down. Like, if you don't have good musicality and you don't have, uh, if you haven't spent time in developing some sort of connection to the work, I'm not really interested in watching it, you know? Um, So someone who's really talented, you know, obviously they would have to put in the work, I would say, um, as far as developing their skills. Um, But also someone who has that understanding of the musicality and um, is connected to the artistry in some way so that at the end of the day, I tell my students this all the time, even my little ones, I said, well, what's your job? Why are you here? When you go on stage, what's your job? And they say, to perform. And I say, no, that's not your job. Your job is to communicate. That's your job at the end of the day. So whether that's a story or something abstract or just a feeling, you know, whatever the thing is, that is your job. So um, I think a talented dancer is a good communicator on stage. There we go. I got there. A beautiful kind of, (laughs) I think, almost a sort of a shower of ideas, right? And I would encourage you to ask that question of a lot of people that you respect or that you work with. Yeah. Because everyone will answer differently. And we are so um, unclear about what explicitly talent is. And I think that can be incredibly difficult for both young people and people who are developing their talent and parents, Mm. because Mm -hmm. essentially you are looking into a black void going, what do I do to be able to be, uh, you know, included in this opportunity or invited into this training program or get successful auditions Mm -hmm. and everybody has a different answer. So it's entirely subjective. And so there's a whole chapter about, about subjectivity and talent development, talent identification. Um, as you mentioned, there is a chapter about parenting and what it's like to try and parent someone who's <laughs> trying to develop their talent as a dancer. I won't get into that. We can have another conversation right? about that. We can probably have 10 podcasts about that. I mean, way more than that, actually. Sure. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it could be tricky, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, And then the last two sort of large uh, chunks of the book are about realities. So recognizing things like perfectionism and obsessive passion as things Mm -hmm. that a lot of people who participate in dance will experience. And although perfectionism is generally seen as a negative thing, there are some positive things about it as well. It's a kind of what we would call a dual effect characteristic. And often people are selected, are identified for their talent of being perfectionistic, mm-hmm. right? You think about a good student as a dance teacher, that student is likely to be very perfectionistic. But what that can turn into is that you are kind of, you're encouraging their perfectionistic tendencies because that's what you want to see. You want to see them really work in a diligent way. You want to see them be very detail oriented. You want to mm-hmm. see them you know, work hard for really excellent performance, but actually what they're potentially learning from that is that it's good to be really, really perfectionistic and never satisfied and always wishing that you could be perfect or reaching for an ideal that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that's not so good. So how do we balance those dual effect characteristics? How do we make sure that they're 
sort of safely developed and that the people who have them understand the differences between using them for for good and using them for, yes. for harm. <laughs> it's like a, a it's like a Spider-Man, right? Yeah. Like those with with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah, I was just listening to Jackson Gerard do his his talk on um, Oh yeah. Minding the gaps raising the bar. Nice. series and yeah, we talked about Spider-Man as well. I feel Love like, him. you know. <laughs> it's universal. <laughs> yeah, Stanley should be should be paying us for this. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then I guess the final bit of the book is about action and talking about how dancers and dancers' parents need to be um, scientists, that we need to think about the way that we make decisions, the way that we live in the world, the way that we develop our talent and take care of our bodies and our minds um, in a scientific way and in an evidence-based way. Um, it's not enough to just kind of do what the person next to you is doing or to do what that person who, you know, got interviewed in, in the magazine is doing. You need to do what's right for you and you need to inform yourself about that from reliable sources. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, so much. And um, and, th and that can come into play for so many different things, whether it's not listening to that ballerina on Instagram who's telling you what she's eating every day. <laughs> You know, number one, like that's the first thing that came top of mind. I get so sick of seeing those like, look what I ate in a day. And like, that's great for you, but it's it's going to work for maybe one out of the next thousand dancers, you know? So yeah, that's fantastic. Really, really good stuff. Well, again, I'm super excited to dive into that text. And like I said, we'll have to have another show, have you come back and um, break it down and uh, yeah. I'm sure I'll have a million questions for you. <laughs> I look forward to it. Yeah, I yeah. think. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we come to a close, um, speaking of universal questions, um, and I might actually add that one to, to my little list here, but I have two kind of lighter questions um, and I've been getting some really interesting uh, answers from my guests. So the first one, I'm gonna put you in my time machine and I'm going to send you back to 14, age 14. I know, that's everyone's response. <laughs> that the, the grimmest face, like, oof, <laughs> why? <laughs> so I'm sending you back to age 14, and I'd love to hear uh, what advice you might give yourself as a young dancer. Oh my gosh, 14 was so hard. Aww. And I I encourage everyone who's listening, if you're not 14 right now, I want <laughs> you to rewind for yourself to 14. Yeah. I think we forget how hard being being at that age and that sort of growth and development time frame is. It's mm -hmm. so hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I was speaking to my 14-year-old self, who was incredibly awkward, who had just had a massive growth spurt, who was essentially twice the size and weight of everyone else who was around mm. her. Um, and, you know, had a spotty face and glasses and braces and was just a mess. <laughs> I mean, a mess from start to finish. Um, what I would tell her is to steer into fear. Mm. Because I think I was so afraid of making a mistake or doing something wrong or not saying the right thing that I don't think that I really experienced a lot of stuff. I took myself away from those experiences. Mm -hmm. And if I had just steered into that fear, I think I would have, I would have enjoyed that time a little bit more. I would have 
found my feet a little bit faster. Um, I love, there's a poem by Douglas Malloch called Good Timber. And he says, good timber does not grow with ease. The stronger wind, the stronger trees. The further sky, the greater length. The more the storm, the more the strength. Mm. I just got goosebumps. That was so good. <laughs> and it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Think so about the... I think just allowing that fear to happen and being okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be a rainbow on the other side, right? Yeah. I was just, I yeah. was just, I had this like visual of you as the captain of a ship in the middle of a storm and steering right into the eye of the storm. And, you know, that's lovely. Oh, thank you for that. Oh, so good. I feel like it should be a t-shirt. <laughs> Steer totally, into the fear. Totally. Yeah, yeah. 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 Good stuff. Okay. So last question. And now I'm going to give you my magic wand. <laughs> and you get to wave it. But unfortunately, you only get to change just one aspect of the ballet world. What would it be? Okay, so I'm actually going to cheat on this one a little bit. I, I hope like you don't it. mind. <laughs> Not at all. So um, I've done recently uh, a, a research study with the most incredible two researchers. Um, one is Kathleen McGuire Gaines from Minding the Gap. The other one is Dr. Lucy Clements. She's um, the dance psychologist on yep. Instagram. Yeah. And one of the questions that we asked, you know how I said that One Dance UK had done research in 1988, 1995, and 2005. Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions we always ask in every single one of those researches is, if you had a magic wand, what would you change? Oh, wow. Fascinating, <laughs> I had no right? Idea. I was so, so excited when, so you, when you sent me this question. <laughs> and so Lucy, Kathleen, and I redid this study in 2020. Okay. And we asked a thousand dancers the same question. And so I'm holding here the results of that oh my research. Goodness. <laughs> and I'm going to read you out my favorite quote. This is fantastic. So, this person said, if I had a magic wand and I could change anything about dance, dance would be talked about, taught, and approached professionally as a way to feel alive and expressive in your individual body, rather than being focused on the body as a separate thing. Oh. I love that. I think it's so beautiful. And yeah. I think it really says something about who, who we are when we're dancing. We're not bodies. We are so much more than bodies. Mm. Oh. I'm, I'm really, I'm going to try really hard not to cry right now. You got me. <sighs> Wait, it's so true though. Um, because honestly, when you hit that flow, when you hit that moment on stage or even in rehearsal or even by yourself, it's an out of body experience. It truly is, you know, that moment when you connect with someone um, or connect with yourself through movement, it's truly out of body and nothing in your body matters. So that completely makes sense to me and speaks to me. So 
It's a cheat, but I'll take it all day long. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a very, very good, good one. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't get in trouble for cheating. Not at all. No, and and that's why I love these these kind of like fun, you know, more lighter questions at the end because I do. I like I've I've gotten 51 answers, and they're none of them are the same. You know. Yeah. So good. And you've got a thousand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Wow, that's so great. So cool. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, I'm just like my face hurts from smiling so much. <laughs> I feel the same way. It's so Aww. like I forget that that people can only hear us. But like throughout this, if you're listening, you can just imagine us both smiling like yeah. with all the teeth, all the teeth, <laughs> all the teeth. Yes, all the teeth. That's so true. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, before I let you go, please tell the listeners, and guys, as always, I'll plug all the stuff in the show notes so you can click on them, um, but where they can connect with you, with your research, website, um, events, all, all of that stuff. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram. My name is spelled E-I-R-I-N-N, um, and my surname, surname is Sanchez, S-A-N-C-H-E-Z. Um, I am Erin Sanchez at, um, on Instagram, and you can also find my work through one.ck, uh, www.one.ck.org and the National Institute of Dance Medicine and Science, which is nidms.co.uk. Um, you can find the book Performance Psychology for Dancers, which is myself, Professor Dave Collins and Dr. Anya McNamara, um, wherever books are sold. I mean, most people that's, you know, on the interweb, mm -hmm. um, but you can also probably go to a good old fashioned bookstore and find it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Can't wait. <laughs> well, thank you again. This has been a true gift, this episode. I can't wait to share it with everybody and I know we're, we're going to get a huge response and I mean, I'm just truly grateful for you being in this world well, and doing what you do. I feel the same way. This has been such a lovely conversation and Aww. thank you again so much for having me. All right. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Take All right. Care. Bye. Bye. Wow. That was a lot of information, but a lot of really, really great information, a lot of applicable information, a lot of action steps, so many great things in that episode. Um, I mean, first of all, I just find the research fascinating. As always, um, I'm just deeply jealous of, of people who are involved in, in this research, and it must be so incredibly exciting, maybe a little frustrating and, and disheartening at times especially when you hear the statistic that um, I found both disturbing and fascinating, that while 80% of dancers in one of the studies she mentioned experienced an injury in the last year, while 90% of dancers experienced a mental health issue in the last year. Like, what? Like, what is going on here? How many, here's my question, how many of that 90% both have access to and are getting the help that they need. I mean, that's that's the disturbing part, right? Like, wow. Oh, so scary. Um, if you're one of those 90%, please click the link in the show notes. If you're on my Instagram, click the link tree. 
I'm adding new resources every day that I find them. Um, talk to your G GP if you have one. They can refer you, please. Um, and if you're having trouble getting access, um, there's some really great uh, resources as well in the link um, for different assessments you can take and uh, programs that you can look for to help you gain access because it's, it's so important. I'm also really impressed by the program she's involved with and the impact they're having on the dance world. I mean, it's, it's incredible around the world what organizations are doing to help dancers on all different levels of performance, not just in order for them to have longer careers, but for them to just be happier people existing in the world. I think it's really, really cool. And finally, seriously, you guys, go order her book. It's so good and incredibly insightful. And seriously, you do not need a PhD to understand it. It's so relatable, it's so accessible. Um, and I just really encourage you to check it out. Links are in the show notes where you can buy it. Um, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but I really do encourage you, no matter where you're at um, in your career, or if you're in leadership, if you're a parent of a dancer, please, please, please go check out her book. It's so good. And I just want to thank you all for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts follow the pod on Spotify and share it with just three friends to get the world to get the word out. And as always, if you have any questions, particular talk topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, you can email those to me at dancebetterpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And of course you can follow the show on Instagram and DM me there at dancebetterpodcast. Thank you so much for listening today, everyone. I cannot wait to learn with you on the next episode. Bye.